Because in the moment, I didn't know, I, I had a sense I was being insulted, but I wasn't really, I didn't have any idea what the insult was. Given my scope of insults, typically when someone insults me, I know exactly what they're saying about me. Uh, but in this particular instance, I, the tone, it had an insult tone to it, but I had no idea. So the context is that between my sophomore and junior year of college, and I had the opportunity to live for an entire summer on the island of Maui. Yes, it was nice. Whatever you're envisioning, it was better than that. Uh, I was volunteering for a Christian leadership uh, development organization that flew in uh, leaders from around the world and provided them with leadership training. And so my job was just to run sound, actually. And so one of the things that made it magical is before work, we would go surfing. We would go surfing before work. Okay. Now, clarifier, the group would go surfing... I would either attempt surfing, which I'd never, I never accomplished the whole summer, or boogie boarding. Boogie boarding is surfing for people with poor balance, and it's fun. On this particular morning, I was trying, I was attempting to surf, and we were at a local break. If you don't know what that means, ask Dr. Stanger after the service. It was at a local break, and so there were quite a few locals there surfing, and I was bumbling, trying to do the surfing thing, and a really good wave came, and my bumbling prevented one of the locals from catching this great wave. And after the wave crashed, the local addressed me. Dr. Stanger, how did that local address me? He called me a what? He called me a howley. He called me a howley. This is a word I'd never heard before, a word that I did not know the definition of. But the way he said howley made it really, really clear that he was not welcoming me to his community or his surfing area. So I went and got my boogie board and went down the shore a little bit. So I did find throughout the summer that it was a mostly playful but somewhat derogatory term for those of us of the Caucasian persuasion invading the beautiful Hawaiian islands when we get in their way or do something very obviously touristy, they'll, they'll call you a howley. And I think they mean it mostly in good fun. Decades later, I came across one of the potential origin stories of the term howley. There's no definitive origin of where this term howley, that's just this umbrella term for the white folks that go to Hawaii, uh, there's no definitive term, but there's some really compelling stories, and one of them is that when James Cook and his crew arrived in the Hawaiian Islands in the 1700s, it has been said that he discovered the Hawaiian Islands. The problem is there had been people living there for thousands of years, which to me makes it a little less impressive. I think it was pre-discovered. Um, but he rediscovered it as people were already living there, uh, and as was the case at the time, shortly after they were discovered, uh, some people came to move there, and one of the people that came to move to the Hawaiian Islands were some missionaries. And those missionaries wanted to bring the people of Hawaii to knowledge of Jesus Christ and have them join the Christian church. Now, the native Hawaiians had a, re a religious culture already, they had temples, they had places that they went to worship on a regular basis, they had their own rituals, they had their own rhythms and their own ceremonies. But these missionaries came in, kind of took over, 
and uh, the Hawaiians were disoriented by the really, really different form of worship. A really important part of the Hawaiian culture and a part of their religious services is what we would now call some deep breathing exercises. They were very cutting-edge people. And so before entering into the temple for a traditional Hawaiian service, each person before entering would stop and take three slow, deep breaths. See, that took so long, you, you felt awkward, right? It was awkward. That was before entering, they would do this. And that, that type of breathing was uh, woven into the worship service and also upon leaving. Then you've got the European missionaries who are talking as they approach the place of worship. And then the entire worship service is talking. And then they leave and talk as they leave. And over weeks and months of these Hawaiians maybe participating, but definitely standing off and observing they started getting really confused because they never saw these missionaries breathing. It's concerning, right? So they started calling them ha'oli, without breath, the breathless ones. And it wasn't just about a, a disturbing lack of any respiratory activity. In the Hawaiian culture, and the Hawaiian language, the word for breath is also the word for spirit. And so the spirit is in the breath. How remarkable that they caught on to the same concept that is in Hebrew Christ, uh, scripture. The word ruach in Hebrew is the word for breath and the word for spirit. So these Hawaiians were looking at these missionaries who had given their very lives to bring the best of news about a Savior, and yet the way they were conducting their daily lives and the way they were conducting even their religious services gave the native Hawaiians an impression that they maybe weren't actually fully human. Because how can you be human without spirit? They were the breathless ones. And I don't know about you, but I relate to that. I think that if in some ill-advised third version of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, if some old-school Native Hawaiians were brought here to Rome, Georgia, to observe for a while, maybe to observe some services even, I think it probably wouldn't take them too long to realize that they've stumbled across some more breathless ones. Some ones without breath. I don't know about you, but I, I regularly feel out of breath, which stands in stark contrast to the Spirit of God that is within me. And if we're to make sense of this and maybe escape from this discontinuity, from the breathlessness that we experience in life, and the ruach, the ole, the spirit, the breath that is within us, the God within us, we need to look first at a word in Scripture that we typically just brush right past. So my daughter, Selah, and my wife read Psalm 24, and twice in that psalm and scattered across, across other psalms and a few other places in Scripture, 
is that word, selah. And some translations don't even include the word selah because we don't really use it. We don't really talk about it. It's not really important to the message of the scripture, so we just kind of go right past it. And if you look up the word selah, you'll probably find a definition that says something like to pause and reflect, which sounds really beautiful. That's what we found when we were looking for baby names and named Selah, pause and reflect, and she is a reflective young lady. But the origin of that word is very much connected to the fact that the Psalms, when they were written, they were meant as musical poems to be sung. And so that word Selah is really musical instruction. It's a note for the musicians to pause during the music. This is a place in the scripture where there needs to be a rest. So it's a musical term. So I went and brushed up. I did seven years of band. It's been a long time. So I was like, all right, rests in music. What, what, is, what, do we, what can we learn about rests in music? And there's at least 11 different types of rests in our current musical notation. There's short rests and there's long rests and there's rests to help slow down the music and there's rests to bring a buildup of the music. There's rests that are a set period of time, and there's rests that are open for interpretation by the musician. And if you've ever played brass or woodwinds, you know that there also need to be rests so that you can breathe. Because if you're not breathing, you're not playing a brass or woodwind instrument. Lots of rests. So if I wanted to continue my research endeavor on rests, I would pursue an interview with what I believe to be the greatest composer of the past century, who has said that his last composition will be the soundtrack for the last Indiana Jones movie. I am talking about John Williams. If you don't know who John Williams is, you need to go do some learning and some listening. Prolific master of musical composition. So I would pursue him for an interview. I'd go to him and say, Dr. Williams, Mr. Williams, Herr Williams, whatever you want to be called, how do you know when you're composing, when you're crafting one of these masterpieces, how do you know where to put the music and where to put the rests? And he would look at me like I was an idiot, and I would repeat the question. When you're composing a masterpiece, how do you know where to put the music and where to put the rests? He would say, I think, pat me on the head maybe, the rests are not separate from the music. The rests are, are a part of the music. They're actually a really, really integral, important, vital part of the music. Honestly, without the rests, there can be no music. Without the rests, there can't be any music. And I would posit that similarly, without the rests, there can be no life. Without the rest, there can be no life. And if you think I'm making a really, really big metaphorical stretch to compare music to life, it's well-trod ground. If any of you are Narnia fans, you may recall how the Christ figure Aslan brought Narnia into being. How did he do that? He sang. The lion Aslan sang the world into being. 
and not coincidentally, his buddy J.R.R. Tolkien, in his history book about the world of the Lord of the Rings, not in the Lord of the Rings, uh, the Silmarillion is a history book from the Lord of the Rings, and I'm a nerd, but I could not get through this book. It's dense. But in Tolkien's depiction, uh, this, is, this is this beautiful creation depiction of Middle-earth and the Lord of the Rings. And again, the creator is singing and, and weaving this beautiful musical composition. And Tolkien goes a step further. And as the Satan figure in Lord of the Rings begins to craft his own music, the creator has the power to weave that dissonant tone and that dissonant sound into his own melody. Creation is sung into existence. Lewis and Tolkien were not just coming up with some creative concept. Hebrew scholars envision our creator singing creation into being. Not a declaration of, put some oceans over here, let's get some land over here. It's not like a Chip and Joanna scene. Let's get a lot of shiplap on this continent. Uh, the, the Hebrew rabbis envision a God whose spirit, whose breath, whose voice singing over the water. So it's not my idea, not Lewis's idea, not Tolkien's idea. God has woven this connection between what music and what music is and life and what life is. And if you walk out and pay attention to creation, you are going to hear the music of creation. And I'm telling you that without rest, there can be no life because it is what creation tells us. And if we look directly to Scripture, we don't have to go any further than the story of creation. I grew up in the church and was always told that the, the climax of creation was me. Humans created in God's image was the pinnacle, the climax of creation. It makes sense. Then he was done, and then on the seventh day, God rested. But again, if you ask a rabbi, he'll tell you that on the seventh day, God continued to create. He created menuha. If you want to, you can try to say it. Menuha. The rest that we just skate past in the story of creation, the menuha is this joyful repose, a tranquility, a delight in the fullness of creation. All that God has declared good, he is now participating in and enjoying. The Hebrew scholar would tell us that the climax of creation was that seventh day when Menuha was brought into being. My family lives on a farm. It's really hot right now. And we've been daydreaming about a pool and I did some research on in-ground pools, and then I stopped doing research on in-ground pools because <laughs> they are profoundly expensive. But then I started doing research on above-ground pools, and they are really cheap. So I started daydreaming about doing some, some 
leveling of the land for this really big above-ground pool, building a deck so that it kind of feels like an in-ground pool, and you can walk up to the edge of the deck, and there's the pool. And it would take, I calculate, it's going to take a long time, probably six months given the other obligations I have. So let's just imagine that I spent this summer out on the farm leveling the land, building the pool, building the deck, staining the deck, and then we never used it. Never got on the deck, never got in the pool. Is that complete? What was the point of it? Oh, the manuha of sitting on the deck, jumping in the pool, hearing the delight in my children, seeing the joyful repose of my wife. That's, that's the climax of the creation of that place. And so on an infinitely grander scale, the climax of creation was Menucha rest. And it's what we're longing for. The return of Christ and eternity with Him is about a return to pre-fall creation. An eternal Menucha in which we are delighting in the one who has made all things right again. Without the rest, there can be no life. This was the climax of creation. But it didn't stop there. It's, it's a command of the Creator to all of His creatures. If you go out looking for an apple in January, you're going to be sorely disappointed because God wove into the pattern of his creation rhythms of rest for all of his creatures. You're not going to get a photo op with a bear in the winter. They're sleeping. Wouldn't it be great to sleep through the whole winter? Even the ground we walk on, God wove with the spirit of Manuha. If you read the current best practices in farming, one of the things you'll discover is a command from Old Testament Scripture that every seventh year you need to let the land rest. Experience restoration and renewal. We are the only stubborn ones who resist the command of our Creator to rest. We tend to treat rest in one of two ways. Either it's this thing we earn, it's this beautiful thing that we all long for, and if we work hard enough and we work long enough, we might earn an amount of rest as a reward. Or we see rest as this like necessary evil. God puts up with our fallibility and our requiring of rest and will allow us to rest just long enough to get back to work. And this is the created design flipped on its head. Because what we were primarily created for was the tranquility and the delight with the Creator. We were created for the manuha, and the work came with the breaking, the endless labor, not purposeful vocation, but the grueling Seemingly endless emails, tasks, things to do. We think that God is good because He lets us 
rest. Instead of recognizing that he created us for that rest. And one of the silliest arguments and most pointless arguments I've ever heard is around, like, where is the command for the Sabbath, is that still valid now? Or in the new covenant, are we released from that? As if whether or not it's a command is relevant to whether or not we are created for it. My oldest daughter in a few years is probably going to be leaving home and going to college. And right now she knows that every meal needs to include some fruit or some vegetables. It's a command. When she goes to college, she goes to D-Hall for the first time, and she goes to prepare her meal, she's probably not going to, com- to, to ponder whether or not it's, she's still under the command of her parents. She's going to eat whatever she wants to. But it doesn't change what her body was created to need. Her need for those fruits and vegetables changes none. And in a similar way, whatever your theological perspective is on the Sabbath, God didn't create arbitrary commands. He commanded things in the Old Testament based on how he knew he wove us together. We were created for this menuha rest. So it may no longer be a command, but it is the Creator's kindness. Friends, I hope that you would buy in to this idea that without rest, there can be no life. We can live, we can survive, but the type of life that is the Spirit of God breathing through us fully and richly as we look back to the good, perfect creation and long for the restoration, that it's the true Manuha rest when we get a taste of what we were created for and what we are really longing for. If I've convinced you, after the service, there'll be a QR code up on the screen. It's not to sign up for something or to buy anything. Uh, It's just a link to a PDF of some exercises and some books that might help you explore the shape of your life and what it could look like to weave the God-orchestrated and ordained manuha into the seasons of your life. And we can practice it right now, because in a moment I'm going to pray for you, and after I pray, Jeff's going to come up here and lead us in communion. And communion is an inherently reflective sacrament. We're going to be led through confession, and typically, especially as good Presbyterians, confession is a part of communion, but it's not the only part. So here's the menuha piece of communion. I would challenge each of us to, as we sit, before we take the elements, to think about the gift and the delight of engaging in a sacrament that has been practiced for thousands of years by a community that we are a part of beauty of that. Take a moment to look at the family members and friends who are with you and participating with you. The good whole gift of relationships that we were created for. Delight in that.
And as you receive the elements, thinking of the blood and the body of Christ and the wholeness and the fullness and the eternal manuha that is ours because of it. And receive communion in that delight. And let it be a taste of Christ and a taste of our eternal manuha. Let's pray. Father, I know that I will never convince you that I get it. You know that my life is a constant tug of war with my desperate longing to prove my sufficiency and my worth and your invitation and kind calling into your fullness and rest. I ask that for each of us, you would anchor your command to be still and know you into the depths of our breathing spirit and that you would shape our lives in such a way that people would be taken aback by the breath we have in our lives and that breath would draw them to the giver of breath. We love you.